Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my unsilenceable Irish friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about exploratory structural equation modeling, a technique drawing upon the strengths of exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis methods and able to be embedded within structural equation models. Along the way, we also mention crab versus crabs, most dangerous catch, next day blinds, smash and grab, sharp pencils, opening the barn doors, stinking badges, all hat and no cattle, control issues, quieting the Irishman, oxymorons, selling factors on eBay, living with mom or dad, going higgly piggly, and treats for the mole. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So I live in the state of Maryland. You know what Maryland is famous for? Oh, God, if you tell me one more time about your freaking crabs. <laughs> so people are crazy here about crabs, right? It's the emblem for everything. People will often say, hey, do you want to go out for crabs or do you want to come over for crabs? It is an incredible social event for people to have these giant buckets of cooked crabs and you lay them out on a table Oftentimes you have a wooden mallet and you pound on them and then you take these little pickers and you pick out the meat and you sit there and you eat them for what can amount to hours. So I've been invited to a number of these and I hate them. (laughs) I hate them. I hate them for a variety of reasons. One is I don't believe that you should burn more calories trying to eat a food than you actually take in eating the food. You have to pick all the little meat out of these tiny little crabs. For me, that's just not an enjoyable thing to do. On the Carolina Eastern Seashore, they steam a giant bucket of all sorts of Mm -hmm. things. So there's shrimp and clams and oysters and I don't know what else is in there. I've seen things I didn't recognize (laughs) and I'm like, I'm not sure that's supposed to be there. Uh But they dump it out on newspapers. And you know why I hate that is I got one of the worst cuts on the palm of my hand from one of these oyster shells. Then it was immediately filled with salt and lemon (laughs) juice. I think I just went through a drive-thru on the way home with a sock wrapped around my hand that got a hamburger and fries. So I'm with you, brother. It's hard to go to eat Maryland crabs when I come from a place, the Pacific Northwest, that has king crab. And so we don't even use the plural crabs. If we go out to eat crab, we eat crab. As in, you might have three crab legs, each of which is over a pound. So my whole frame of reference is distorted. Both my parents were high school teachers, and we were solidly middle class. Once a year for my dad's birthday, we would go to his favorite restaurant that we did not go to the entire rest of the year, Mm -hmm. and it was Red Lobster. Oh. Russia has opened her fishing waters to Red Lobster. And now you can taste the sweetest, most delicious king crab, direct from the icy Bering Sea. Now, I know those are not Seattle freshly caught. You go out on the dock and wrestle the crab, and whoever wins (laughs) gets to eat the other one. Uh (laughs) But yes, I have seen a king crab leg. So I explained that to this person who kindly invited me about king crabs. And she said, yeah, but those aren't really crab. And I said, what do you mean? It's, it's, it's king crab. Of course it's crab. She goes, no, technically that's not crab. Right? I mean, this was an assault to my identity. As a person from the Pacific Northwest, I went into the great black hole that is Google, and I looked this up, and she was right. King crab is not 
technically crab. It is from a different part of the things that are good with hot butter and lemon taxonomy. It is not technically the same family. I want to jump back just a moment as you were assaulted about your view of crab, which followed your assault on a very kind person who invited you to a social event. Yeah, okay, but... And your opening gambit is, I'm not going to eat your weenie-ass little crabs. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so Basically. I just want to clarify that. I have no idea why I don't fit in here. I just don't understand. I don't, I don't know. You just <laughs> sit down there quietly and think about it. The other thing is, isn't this entire conversation a moot point? Because the Pacific Northwest king crabs don't even exist anymore. I used to mm. watch Most Dangerous Catch or something like that, where these poor guys keep getting swept off the boat. Right. It's crab season on Alaska's Bering Sea. A handful of adventurers will battle Arctic weather. They had to suspend the entire season this year because all the king crabs are gone. Yeah. For the first time in a quarter century, Red King Crab is canceled. They were like, screw you guys, we're out of here. <laughs> and we're not even crabs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I started looking up stuff and I realized that king crab is not the only thing that is not what it is supposed to be. So for example, red pandas, not pandas, fireflies, not flies, koala bear, not a bear, peanut, not a nut, white chocolate, not chocolate, strawberry, not a berry, guinea pigs, this one really hit home because of Sewell Wright, neither guinea nor pig. All of those right up to there. Yeah. I was like, really, 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 really? Did you even for a <laughs> moment in your life think that a guinea pig was a type of pig? From Guinea, no less. Yeah, okay, right. I didn't exactly think about it. But still, it just sort of threw me off. It was like when I ordered blinds for our house from Next Day Blinds, and they told me they'd be ready in two months. <laughs> You're called Next Day Blinds. Every single week, I ask myself, why are we talking about this? When I was down this rabbit hole, when I got to guinea pigs being <laughs> neither pigs nor from Guinea, I started thinking about things in the statistical world that might be very poorly named. I came up with one for starters. You and I have griped about non-recursive models, right? That's one of the worst names. Yeah, that's that horrible. Anything could be assigned. I literally teach, think about how you would define it yourself, mm -hmm. and it's the opposite of <laughs> that. Right. That's the lesson. I got to thinking that there is something else that I think is absolutely horribly named that is in our field. And I think that's a reason for us to talk about it. It is the topic of exploratory structural equation modeling. Oh, nice pivot. Mm -hmm. Took us a long walk to get there, <laughs> and I'm still worried about the pig thing. I couldn't agree more. This seems a bit like a smashing grab of there's this cool stuff we like about exploratory factor analysis. Yeah. There's this cool stuff we like about confirmatory factor analysis and then expanding it to the SEM. I wonder if we can break the glass on the jewelry case and grab as many watches as we can before somebody intervenes and try to build an exploratory confirmatory. Yeah. 
well, let's just think about it from the start. Without any more detail on what exploratory structural equation modeling is, the thing that bothers me about it right out of the gate, however well-intentioned, however much good it is going to do, as we'll try to talk about in a bit, the whole identity of structural equation modeling for me is very confirmatory, right? Every time I teach it, I'm sure every time you teach it, you talk about the importance of an a priori theory and that the words that we throw around that relate to cause are not because of the results that we get, but because of the theory that we bring to the table. So this thing has confirmatory written all over it. And then now the word exploratory gets thrown out front. And to me, it throws everything off. And I think it actually does the technique a bit of a disservice. It makes me go back to when we were talking about factor analysis and our big walkaway point is exploratory factor analysis Mm -hmm. isn't exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis isn't confirmatory. And if you can get your head around that, you're going to be just fine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do not have concerns about ESIM as it exists. It's like everything else in life. A sharp pencil isn't inherently good or bad. If you solve Fermat's theorem versus stick it in somebody's carotid, those have different outcomes. Your Honor. I once saw him kill three men in a bar with a pencil. I now see in retrospect the choices I made were not ideal. I see ESEM as a sharp pencil. Mm -hmm. It's a tool. It's something we have available to us. My worries are how it's used in practice, how it's presented to a reader in an application. The good old term of all hat and no cattle. (laughs) It seems to promise a great deal, but when you sit down and really think about it a bit, there's some downstream costs that we really need to be able to embrace and recognize and convey to the reader. So to be super clear going into this, I am not at all anti-ESIM. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the concerns I have about EFA and the concerns I have about CFA are simultaneously addressed within an ESIM-like framework, but you also got to pay the reaper in what you're doing with your data the serendipity of solutions to idiosyncratic characteristics of your sample, and then how do you present that to the reader in building a cumulative and reproducible science? Those are the things that worry me. Let's start off with EFA. What do you like about EFA? I love EFA. You and I, against our better judgment, are teaching a workshop on measurement this spring (laughs) through CenterStat. So folks out there, if you don't get enough of us in this way for free and you want to give us money, go to CenterStat.org. And Greg and I have a four-day class on measurement. We open with a full board double down on exploratory factor analysis. Very briefly, You have a set of items. Let's just say you have 20 indicators on some construct that you're interested in. From my neck of the woods, maybe it is internalizing symptomatology. These are indicators of issues that you have within yourself. Depression, anxiety, anger, hostility, social withdrawal, whatever that might be. You have 20 items, and you have a very good sense that these items are tapping into underlying depression, but maybe you're in the development phase 
of these set of items, and you're not exactly sure how they want to group together. And so what we do is throw open the barn door and say, let's let the data speak to us. And we compute these things called eigenvalues. With each eigenvalue is associated a set of weights called eigenvectors. And what we do is say, what dimensionality do the data want to have? Is there one big factor where all 20 items load on it? Are there two factors where the first 10 items are associated with the first factor, the second 10 on the second factor? Are those factors correlated or not? There are all ways that we can do this in an exploratory way. And then you lean back and say, when we allow the data to speak to us, it wants there to be a three-dimensional underlying latent structure where the dimensions correlate with one another. And these items primarily load on factor one, these on two, these on three. Notice my careful use of the word primarily because all items load on all factors, which means we're kind of a Sarah Palin, you know, we're a hoping and we're a wishing. (laughs) Remember back when she was going after Obama? And all that hopey changey stuff. This hopey changey Mm -hmm. is we're kind of hopey that one item loads predominantly on one factor And then the technical term we have are the Irish loadings Mm -hmm. on all other factors, Mm -hmm. which is O'Curran, O'Hancock, 07, 09, 03. Mm -hmm. There's a dominant loading, but then drips and drabs of cross loadings. The problem is, though, is there aren't always drips or drabs, is sometimes they're not Irish loadings, and they become one item loads 0.7 on one factor, but 0.3 on another, and your eye starts to twitch a little bit. Mm -hmm. So the biggest advantage for me is the data speaks to us. One of the biggest limitations is we are doing no a priori test of a predicted structure in which we tell the model what factor loadings are free and not versus allowing them all to run out into the corral and we see how they cluster together themselves. I totally agree. Exploratory factor analysis does a lot, but you give up control over a lot of things. So tell me what you like about CFA. I wax poetic about EFA. You tell me. Spin every advantage I laid out as a disadvantage and how you would fix it within the CFA. First, get yourself a damn theory, all right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We don't need no stinking theories. Are you ready to attack Rock Ridge at noon tomorrow? Here's your badge. Badges? We don't need no stinking badges. Oh, no. Yeah, EFA is the hat, CFA is the cattle. All hat and no cattle, that boy just ain't real. So you bring a theory, and you bring a theory in terms of the number of factors that you have. You bring a theory about which variables ought to be indicating which particular factors. If you have some theory about extracurricular relations that variables have, you can put in error covariances. You can constrain loadings not just to zero. You can constrain them to be equal. I mean, if you have control issues, welcome. Have a seat. Because this is <laughs> this is the place. You're amongst <laughs> oh, friends. Yes, you Hi, my name is Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, Hi, Greg. Hi. Yeah, I mean, confirmatory fact analysis really is the place for exerting control over things. The way it is typically practiced, though, one could argue that people exercise a little bit too much control. 
the way people will usually impose an a priori factor structure is that they will assume that the items that they have are just the cleanest items in the world. These variables only go with factor one, and they shall not be associated with factors two or three other than whatever relations they have via factor one. And the same thing for a set of indicators of factor two, same thing for a set of indicators of factor three. I'm not saying that it has to be that clean, but people usually go into a CFA with this incredibly sanitized view of the items that they have. That strength of control that you have might also be a weakness of CFA in that that might not actually be what's going on. Picture in your mind's eye that we have those Irish loadings. And a lot of times we have non-Irish loadings, right? We have a 0.3 or a 0.4 that crosses and we'll deal with those. What we're literally saying is, oh, you want to be 07, 09? How about this? I'm going to make you zero. Yeah. And I'm going to make all of your drinking buddies in the pub zero. I'm not going to let you be a little bit different. I'm not going to let you vary in some caliper. Is you're going to sit down and you're going to shut up. <laughs> You're telling a room full of Irishmen <laughs> that you're going to quiet them down. Is that what you're saying? I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. You liked me yesterday. Oh, did I? Yeah. Confirmatory factor analysis rarely is actually confirmatory because what we do is rub ourselves with baby oil and we flex in front of the mirror and we talk about our theoretically derived research hypotheses, our a priori parameterized model, our Popperian test of Dang. theory, and rarely, if ever, does that fit. Yeah. And we say, well, crap. Yeah. <laughs> So we do one of two things. First, we put our shirt back on and walk away from the mirror because that's just at your age embarrassing at this point. Dad. But second, we could A, do comparative models. So a likelihood ratio test and say, well, 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 maybe I was a little harsh and I'm going to allow these three parameters into the model, whatever those might be. You're still flexing a little bit, but now just feeling awkward about things. You do a three degree of freedom test. And if it improves fit, you incorporate those parameters. Uh, okay, you've walked a few steps out into the minefield mm -hmm. in that you've convinced yourself these are theoretically motivated. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. When it doesn't, we take a shot of Jägermeister and walk further out into the minefield, and we start looking at modification indices. And we say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And then we somehow build a model that is minimally acceptably fitting to our sample data and say, ha ha, I knew it the whole time. I use confirmatory <laughs> factor analysis uh -huh. when we're mostly confirming bad research practices. The greatest strength of EFA is also its biggest limitation, which is all items are allowed to load on all factors. The biggest strength of the CFA is also its biggest limitation. Yes. Which we're saying you can only live on one factor and come hell or high water, you're zero on everything else. And ESEM, which is a king crab or a jumbo shrimp or a civil war or fighting for peace or vegetarian bacon, whatever your oxymoron is, is saying, why can't we all just get along? We'll take a bit of what we like out of EFA. We'll take a bit of what we like out of CFA. Yeah. I like it, but it is a sharp pencil, which is, it depends how you use it and how you convey it to the reader. One thing that we tell you never to do is a CFA on data that you just did an EFA on. 
What's the point of that? It's just going to confirm what you just chose. But it's confirmatory. Yeah. See? <laughs> right. I, it, was, it was confirmatory. <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, okay. It confirmed <laughs> my data-driven yeah. decision. Okay, but here's the funny thing. <laughs> You can actually do an EFA on some data. Let's say you've got the big five personality scale. Imagine that I have data from the items on the big five and I administer them to people and I do an exploratory factor analysis. And sure enough, after an oblique rotation, I get this big five structure. And I take those exact same data and I go over to a CFA and it fits poorly. And you're like, wait just a minute. I did an exploratory factor analysis and it showed me my five factors. And then I put this in a CFA, the exact same data, and I got horrible fit. And the reason is that you have these little cross loadings that are operating, right? The thing that we're trying to get into as we move toward exploratory structural equation modeling is, is the problem the instrument, the big five, or is the problem the method that we're using CFA? With the big five and other instruments where you have a number of dimensions that are related, where you can almost think of them as these subscales of some larger thing that you're trying to get at, it seems almost too much to ask that any one item has no influence at all from the other factors that are actually related in some way, typically. And a confirmatory factor analysis does just that. You're making a great point, Greg, and I'm really excited because you often don't. No. You take the CFA that you could sell on eBay to anybody, you parameterize it as a CFA on the very same data, and nobody's going to buy it because of the horrible fit. And you're looking at it and saying, what the hell? Well, the what the hell is fixing these Irish loadings to zero. And the data is throwing up its hands and saying, no, I can't reproduce characteristics of myself if you give me this model. Now, one of the reasons that we are so focused on model fit, I hate it when people are like, oh, you're just modifying until you get an RMSEA below 05 so you can get it published. And it's like, first, quit talking like that. (laughs) Second, the 05 is a stupid cutoff anyway. And third is the reason that we're doing that is that if there's a misspecification within the confines of the model, it is very, very likely that other parameters are biased. So imagine you have five items on factor one, five items on factor two, and factor one and factor two are correlated. You allow one to five to load on the first factor, but not the second, and vice versa. But let's say the truth as God sees it is a little bit of item six wants to load on factor one. That's a cross-loading because item six's primary loading is on factor two, but a little bit of it wants to be on factor one. In the CFA, you allow that. In the CFA, you fix that to zero. Well, whack-a-mole is going to say those two items want to be related, five and six in a particular way. You're not allowing factor one to influence item six. Where is it going to absorb it? The factor correlation. The correlation between the two factors is going to be biased. Sometimes we don't care about that so much, but if you're going to move to the SEM and make that correlation a regression coefficient, because you made the Irish lad sit in the corner and be quiet and fix those cross loadings to zero, congratulations, you now have a biased regression parameter. These are real and present dangers in these models. Having upwardly biased correlations among the factors because you made the Irish lad sit in a corner there, that is a problem from the point of view of establishing discriminant validity, 
right? You've got all these constructs. You overestimate the degree to which they're related. It's a problem just from the point of view of instrument construction. It's a problem from the point of view of predictive validity. Now, if we want to take those kinds of things and use them as predictors of other things, they have higher collinearity among them. It's harder to establish the relative contributions of one over the other. And then, as you say, you move into a full latent variable path model or some structural equation model, and you're working from inflated relations among those factors. It's the relations among those factors that are the food that feeds the latent variable path model that you are going to be doing. The more you quash real cross-loadings, not just the little randomy things that happen, but real cross-loadings, the more that has to be relieved somewhere, and the only place it can be relieved is in the factor relations. So this has real problems for what we might want to do, this idea of being so controlling with those cross-loadings. How do I let them have that background chatter in my model? That's the question, and that's what ESEM hopefully allows us to do. That brings us to an unbiased opinion, or modern history or a near miss, or the peacekeeper missile. The exploratory Uh structural equation model. The first ship launched in this that I really like this paper. It's 2009 in structural equation modeling. I gotta tell you, I love the title, given our colons and semicolons and puns Uh and everything else. Exploratory structural equation modeling. And it's by Asparov and Mutane. It is a really nice piece. It flies coast to coast with a lot of stuff that we're talking about, but it formalizes equations. It talks about the advantages, the disadvantages. One thing I like is the spirit of the paper is not doing a hard sell on the technique. Mm -hmm. Sometimes these papers are, this is the solution to all our problems. And I find it just very balanced. Is it's like, look, EFA has these strengths, but these limitations. CFA and SEM has these strengths and these limitations. We're trying to tack the ship into the middle of those waters. Sometimes it's going to be useful. Sometimes it's not. If you're orienting to this topic, I would really recommend this paper. There are equations, but it's not a heavy lift. A lot of it is very common sense. Mm -hmm. This is relatively recent, 2009, and there are follow-up papers. We'll put some of these on the show notes. But really what it is is saying, can we combine these in which we saturate the factor loading matrix? That means that we let the Irish lads speak up again. But we can bring in exogenous covariates, which are predictors of our factors. We can look at how some factors relate to other factors, not in correlations or covariances, but in regressions. But then in the spirit of be careful for what you ask, rotations start to play a really important role. Discuss. (laughs) What this technique isn't, is allowing everything to load on everything else. If you're allowing everything to load on everything else without any constraining behavior, then you're back in the EFA world. So there has to be some amount of C in this FA, (laughs) this thing that we're doing, right? Some amount of confirmatory. So usually this whole process starts off with you doing the hard thinking that you're supposed to do in every confirmatory technique. What are the factors that I have? What are the variables that serve 
serve as indicators of that factor. And when I say indicators now, I might say primary indicators or variables that should have target loadings on those particular factors. And then what variables might have non-target loadings? And we don't usually, as you say, open up the barn doors and say, hey, everybody, y'all can load on this. That's fine. We usually will say which ones we think could be able to and maybe shouldn't be able to. So there's still thinking involved, for heaven's sake. Now, imagine that I had a set of four factors of interest, two over on the left and two over on the right. Those two over on the left are getting at one particular domain, and the two factors on the right are getting at some other domain. And I might allow there to be some cross-loadings between the two factors over there on the left side and some cross-loadings over there on the right side, but ne'er the twain shall meet, right? And that's already me imposing some restrictions on this model as a whole, me allowing theory to inform what can and cannot happen in this particular model, right? So cross-loadings within those subsets and no cross-loadings across those subsets. But once I allow cross-loadings, even within one of these subsets, it does bring up that problem of how does the factor model know? How does it know which are the primary loadings and which are the secondary loadings, right? And this is very much like an EFA also. Just because I think I know how this story should end, the analysis that I do doesn't know what I'm thinking. And the same becomes true in this. If I have a portion of my model where I'm saying, I hereby allow cross loadings, how do I communicate this to the model? Rotation is a very prominent part of ESEM in that once you allow cross loading, you have to be able to use a mechanism that helps to sort out which are the primary and which are the secondary loadings. The premise of a rotation is once you have your initial factor solution within an EFA, an infinite number of scalings of those loadings result in exactly the same representation of the data. Some people see this as kind of a very troubling thing. I actually like it, Mm -hmm. right? Is five plus two is seven, four plus three is seven, six plus one is seven. They all equal seven, but might we be able to rescale these in a way that are of some use to us? We would like each item to load highly on one factor and low on all other factors. Sometimes the term is univocal. Mm -hmm. The item is of one voice. So a lot of these rotations were to try to maximize simple structure. To get back to Greg's point of, well, how does an item know where it should live? Because a lot of times in an unrotated solution, you might have an item that has a loading of 0.5 on factor one and 0.5 on factor two. So do you want to live with mommy or do you want to live with daddy? (laughs) I love you both. And the kid is like, ah. It's like, dad lets me watch five hours of TV a day, so I'm going to live with him. Right, Hancock? But... What we do is rotate that and say, well, hey, we can rescale this with respect to some criteria. We're not just going higgly piggly. Is it some criteria that we have? But we rotate that where now the item is 0.8 and Mm 0.2. That works really well in the EFA and we're all cool with that. But it has tentacles in the ESIM. 
not only does the rotation influence the factor loadings, it actually influences a lot of other parameters in the model. Now, this makes perfect sense. If you have exogenous covariates predicting latent factors or some latent factors predicting other latent factors, if you change the loadings, the loadings are going to change the correlations among those factors, which is also going to change the relations among the factors, which is also going to change the influence of the exogenous variable. Be careful for what you ask, because rotation within the ESIM influences all of your parameters, not just the Irish lads in the corner. The idea of rotation is that it's going to be theory-guided. Now, everything that we do, right, you can have other people argue with you, and you describe in your method section, we chose this and why, we chose this and why, and that's our job, right? That's our job, is to disclose the choices that we make and the rationales and be prepared for people to tell us that we're full of shit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> that you're a stupid person with stupid ideas who does stupid things. Thank you, peer review. Who doesn't even know that king crabs aren't crabs? <laughs> <laughs> but the pig, yeah. dude, how long did you go through life? Shut up. I want to live with mom. <laughs> The three classes of rotations that are typically used in ESEM, GeoMin tends to be pretty popular, but then you could also use something that is more targeted, a targeted rotation where you are designating that I would like these loadings to be a bit more dampened and these loadings to be a bit more amplified. So you can have a target type rotation. You can even have and should have, in fact, an orthogonal rotation for certain types of models. Now, orthogonal rotation in the exploratory factor analysis world, I have to confess, I almost never advocate. Unless you're doing something incredibly specific that says you need a complete rigid partitioning of something, I almost never think orthogonal is the way to go because orthogonal is a special case of oblique. So if the good Lord intended things to be orthogonal, that would likely come up in your oblique rotation. However, in let's say a bifactor model, a bifactor model is where you have a set of items and that set of items might, for example, have one general factor that influences all of them and then has some specific factors that influence subsets of those items. Patrick, you have to have an example of a bifactor model in your your world. I love bifactor models. And we did a paper a while ago where we had eight indicators of substance use involvement. Four were alcohol use, and then another four were different types of illicit drugs. Mm -hmm. We had a single common factor for all eight items, but then we had a unique bifactor just for the four alcohol mm -hmm. items so that the alcohol items didn't hijack the polysubstance use factor. In that type of model, you need to specify that the general factor, whether that general factor represents polysubstance use, as Patrick described, or math ability or whatever, that factor is orthogonal to whatever the more specific factors are. So when we enter the ESEM world, we are interested in having a rotation, but we want a rotation that makes sure that those factors wind up staying separate from each other. You can have have a geomin rotation for certain types of models, a targeted type rotation, and a targeted orthogonal kind of rotation as well. 
to stress the reliance of results on rotation is not inherently a limitation of the procedure. Indeed, that's how the procedure works. You simply have to recognize that your model results, not only in the loadings, but in other aspects of your parameters, including exogenous predictors of latent factors and the relation among the latent factors themselves, also can change with rotation. Again, in 2009, I've got the paper right here. They are very clear that this is an area for future research and to read just a couple of lines. And I like these, but it also worries me. It says, to summarize, there is no statistical reason to prefer one rotation criterion over another. It is entirely in the hands of the analyst to make the choice and interpret the results. So this is something that you need to give very careful thought to as an analyst, but we also need additional research in this area to provide guidance on choosing that under a particular set of conditions in your own application. I like to think of ESEM mostly, not entirely, but mostly as this place along the EFA-CFA continuum, right? It draws a little bit on the strengths of EFA as well as the limitations, draws a little bit on the strengths of CFA and the limitations, but it gives us some flexibilities that we don't necessarily have in either one of those. But I don't want us to think that ESEM is somehow going to solve all of our problems. ESEM, for all its complexity, has a lot of limitations to it as well. There are two big ones that I see. One is in the traditional EFA, you cannot examine measurement invariance. Mm-hmm. We have a whole episode on all the double negatives and quadruple <laughs> negatives in failing to reject non-invariance. <laughs> all that is, is picture your factor loading matrix that you have. And the question is, is there one factor loading matrix or are there multiple? Mm-hmm. And multiple meaning, do they differ across group? Do they differ across time? In the EFA, you can't do that. In the ESEM, you are able to evaluate measurement invariance either across group or across time. But the current limitation is it does not allow for a condition that's called partial invariance. Mm -hmm. Complete invariance is all loadings are equal or all loadings are not equal. Mm -hmm. Well, in reality, we don't often have that. Maybe most of the loadings are equal, but a couple are not. It's called partial invariance. So ESEM allows you to look at invariance, but either all or nothing. The other one is ESEM allows you to look at structure in the presence of this exploratory factor analysis kind of framework. We can bring in exogenous covariates to predict latent factors. We can let some latent factors predict other latent factors. That's a huge advantage. But the limitation is structure is saturated within what they call these blocks. And we won't get into that. You can look at the papers to see this. Mm -hmm. A big advantage of the SEM is I say I believe X to predict F1 and F1 to predict F2, but X cannot predict F2. I restrict that regression parameter. In the ESEM, those are saturated. All covariates predict all latent factors. So again, you shrug and say, well, now we've got Irish lads who are not in the lambda matrix, which are factor loadings. We have additional Irish lads who are in the gamma matrix. And we hope that X1 predicting F2 is an O'Shaughnessy or an O3. 
Exactly right. Oftentimes people will say, well, you know, what's the harm in having a path there if the truth is that that path is just going to be very near zero? In fact, it leads people to be very free with things that they do in their models. And it's all well and good when you're specifying a model properly. But when your model is improperly specified, what happens? Whack-a-mole. <laughs> Anytime you open up a relation somewhere where you don't think there ought to be one, you are providing an avenue to alleviate the stress of a misspecification somewhere that is potentially going to give you an even more distorted picture of what's going on. And that's a really good point because the targeted rotation, which is by our hero, Michael Brown, yeah. it's a mix of allowing cross-loadings but also imposing zeros in your matrix, if one of those zeros doesn't really want to be there, you've pushed the mold down into the system. If you have a regression coefficient that you're estimating that's not really there and you're assuming is going to take a zero within sampling variability, but that's now a hole for the mold to pop up. Totally. And you're rotating your solution to to amplify some parameters and others, you're kind of laying out a little treat for the mole to come out of that hole to begin with. You get what you pay for, right? The EFA is throwing open the barn doors. The CFA are making the Irish lads sit and be quiet. We're navigating the middle ground and all the advantages it offers is associated with very natural disadvantages. And as we always say, we're describing the state of where things are to the best of our knowledge, and things will grow. Flexibilities will improve in these kinds of methods as people like you folks out there take these challenges on for interesting methodological projects. For example, if we think about higher order factor models, this is challenging. You could imagine, you know, all the models we've been talking about have been first order factor models where the factors are interfacing directly with the measured variables. But there are a number of places where we care about higher order factor models, where we have factors that actually have factors as their indicators. Then you could imagine having this kind of rotational system and cross-loadings, not just at a first order level, but in theory, depending on the complexity of your model, at a second order level. Well, this isn't able to accommodate that yet. It's not able to work in multi-level models. It's not able to work in mixture models. And I tack the word yet on to all of that because with the advances that people out there might choose to make, those barriers might come down. I'm curious. I'm not curious enough to do the work myself, <laughs> but curious enough to find somebody to do it for me. Imagine you do the EFA in all the way that you would and you identify the primary loadings, the Irish loadings, and then the Midland loadings, mm. right? We got the 0304. We kind of don't care so much about those but we have the point twos and the point threes that we worry about. From that factor pattern matrix, you move to the CFA and manually put in the primary loadings, put in the Midland loadings, take out the Irish loadings. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kind of an ESIM that you're doing in a two-step, hmm. but then you're within the CFA, SEM, and the way that you usually are, although you made decisions based on the characteristics of the data. I would like to see a comparison of that strategy to doing the full-bore ESIM where you just allow everybody to go wherever they want. Mm -hmm. That would be a really interesting comparison. Comparison. All of these things are really interesting directions to try to take this. I really, really like this perspective. The main thing for me is 
unambiguously communicate every step to the reader because you do not want to present a model using these techniques that you imply was a priori theoretically driven. It is not. This is a bean in the pile of accumulative science that if the system is working, someone will replicate the study from a more confirmatory standpoint Mm -hmm. with an independent sample to lead credence to the characteristics of the model that you presented. Because the big danger in these and anything like this is you're overfitting a structure to the idiosyncratic characteristics of your sample data. Hold up in front of you a tiny little bean. That's your dissertation. (laughs) Flick it into the pile. That is cumulative science. And then go for lunch and order jumbo shrimp. (laughs) And eat it with plastic silverware. (laughs) All right, now I'm hungry. I'm out of here. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your jams for your upcoming spring break road trip to Daytona, and please leave us a review. You can also follow us on increasingly irrelevant Twitter. We are at Quantitude Pod, and check out our webpage at quantitudepod.org for current and past episodes, searchable archives, playlists, show notes, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get Quantitude-themed merch to prepare for St. Patrick's Day at redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized products go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. Less of an oxymoron and more of just two morons. Quantitude has been brought to you by oxymorons that can be used in your next research paper, including recruiting a self-selected random sample, saying you have strong evidence supporting the absence of an effect, fitting a latent growth curve model to data that neither grows nor is curved, concluding your study has excessive power, finding the global minima using maximum likelihood, discussing the presence of missing data, and... Inferring cross-sectional causality. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>